0: so many times and places where you might come to a statement or a verse and say, this is one of the most important things in all of Scripture, or nothing is more important than this. I try not to do that because it's so easy to do it. And yet, I would say to you that that in the core of our text today, in one-sentence statement of Jesus, there is something that is certainly of paramount importance in our understanding of Christian faith and I think you'll see what it is. As I read John 14, verses 7 through 11, this is in the middle of Jesus talking to his disciples. He's just told them he's the way, the truth, and the life to God, the unique way to come to God. We pick up there. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Philip said to him, "'Lord, show us the Father.'" Does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Here's a scene that has been repeated in my household quite a few times over the years. Probably you could identify with it in some way. I'm running late for a meeting, I head for the door planning to at least drive close to the speed limit because I don't have much time, only to find as I reach the door, you exit uh, into our garage through a laundry room, and car keys are hung on hooks in the laundry room. No keys on my hook. Oh, no. Where are the keys? I pat my pockets. Not there. I head for the bedroom dresser. Not there. By now, I'm mumbling to myself. Uh, irritated with myself. I'm not blaming others, but where are the keys? Where are the keys? I can't find the keys. Getting deeply frustrated. Now, in my earlier and less discerning days as a husband, I might have called out and said, Carol, did you take my keys? I don't do that anymore because 46 years has taught me that Carol has never yet committed that felony. (laughs) And… So I keep out of trouble. I'm talking to myself and finally, of course, I remember to go to the closet and find the suit coat I was wearing yesterday and there they are in the pocket, right where I left them, right where I should have known that they would be. Now, that's a trivial thing, but that scenario reminds me a little bit of, in a very simple level of a very profound thing. Seen here in John 14, as the disciple Philip said to Jesus, Lord, if you would just show us the Father, where is he? Can we see him? And the answer of Jesus to him was, Philip, the God you seek to know is right under your nose. You've been with me three years. Don't you know that I am in the Father? The Father is in me. Open your eyes. And you'll see God right where he's been obvious to you the whole time. Well, of course, it's not a very big thing if you temporarily misplace your car keys. But it's a great tragedy if you misplace God and do not know where to look for him. Last week, we had 11 disciples struggling as Jesus spoke about the Father and the heavenly home that he was going to go to soon as he would die. He was implying his death without directly stating it. And he was saying, don't worry, you'll be with me, you'll, I'll bring you there, and you know the way there. And of course they said, we don't know the way, and he had to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But their problem was deficient knowledge of God. And so comes this very presumptuous, almost amazing demand by Philip. Lord, I just have one little tiny thing to ask of you. Show us the Father! Show me God. And that would be enough if you would just do that. A creator God dwelling in eternal heavens, a Savior who lived and died and rose 2,000 years ago, these things representing God make him naturally seem distant to millions of people and inaccessible. And people especially who live by the motto of, when I see it, I'll believe it, wonder why is it God is so hard to access or get a glimpse of. And I've even heard fanciful things where once I heard a man say, well, why couldn't God in his almighty power take over every news network some evening and broadcast for all to hear and see his message of his reality and the message of the gospel of Jesus? Why doesn't he appear on every IMAX theater screen in America simultaneously and make himself known? how about an infomercial, God? We need you to show yourself. It seems as if this disciple Philip speaks for the longing of many persons across the ages who would desire to better see and know God. I'm doing something unusual today in dealing with this important text. I thought all the while I was doing it, I must be wrong, but maybe when I got finished, I thought this might be a good approach. I'm going to have two points for you, and the first one is entirely background and introduction before I even take on the text in the second point. But my first point then, by way of background, is to tell you we have a problem with an invisible God. Humanity has a problem with an invisible God. Did you ever think about that? Or recently think about it? You probably did when you were a child. After the first service I had a couple of different parents approach me and said, You know, my my little child is always asking, why can't I see God? Where is he? Why can't children ask these things and adults sort of begin to stop thinking about it, I guess. NASA has sent the very successful Hubble telescope into space to bring back marvelous, splendid images of deep space, things that we couldn't see before. If you've never gotten a book from the library or explored online of the images of the Hubble telescope and you just want a a mind-blowing experience of God's creation, go and check it out. The pictures are unbelievable of the galaxies and the colors and the supernovas and all of these wonderful things. That God has made, but I'm not aware that anybody has claimed to have brought back from the Hubble telescope a picture and saying, There's God. We caught him. We got him to sit still for a portrait. Nobody has said that or implied it. The fact of God's invisibility is so taken for granted that we rarely even talk about it once we're beyond childhood. Yet it's a clear truth of Scripture. God is a spirit. As a spirit, he does not have weight or mass. He does not occupy particular space. He does not have human arms or a face or eyes, even though the Bible uses figures of speech and says God's eye is upon you, his hand is with you, his arm is protecting. We know those aren't literal when the Bible's saying that. It's a way of speaking about him that we might understand. Jeremiah chapter 23 has the Lord say to the prophet, Am I only a God nearby and not far away? Do I not fill heaven and earth? God is immense. And yet we say that he's present with us and aware of us. I couldn't think of a more related hymn to begin the service with today than the one we sang, Immortal, invisible God, only wise in light inaccessible hid from our eyes. The hymn doesn't say God doesn't exist. It says that all we can see of him would be a brightness. If we were able to see what the Bible constantly calls the glory of God, it would be light stunning us and driving us to our knees like Saul of Tarsus on that road to Damascus conversion experience. 1 Timothy 6 has a benediction from that same Paul who gives a benediction there and speaks of the King of kings and Lord of lords who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen nor can see. Now, we do know that God accommodated himself to us in the Old Testament, or to humanity, that is, not you and me. There were any number of miraculous, supernatural God appearances in the Old Testament that were not appearances of a a human figure on the clouds speaking or something, but various phenomena. The theologian has a special word that calls them a theophany, a God appearance. Things like the fire on Mount Sinai when the law was given or the whirlwind and the still small voice that Elijah experienced, the burning bush for Moses, many others, ways in which God caused phenomena that created wonderment and amazement and left people silenced and in awe and in worship, that he was near at least. We know that Moses wanted to get that up close and personal view of God. He said, Lord, let me see your face. And the Lord said, no, no, you, you can see my glory, you can see my passing, but my face you cannot see and live in Exodus 33. The skeptic says that this invisibility of God is a problem and needs to be treated. It's a deficiency about God, for if He was true, He wouldn't be in hiding. They say He's in hiding, and and He's deliberately uh, not allowing us to see Him for some reason. Uh, You're caused to think about the man in The Wizard of Oz, famous story, you know, the little old man uh, behind the curtain that Toto pulls the curtain across, and there he is, pulling the levers, booming into the microphone, I am Oz. And everybody says, whoa, he's just a sham. He's putting on a show. It's a charade. Is that what God is like? If he were revealed to view, would he be something completely other than what we think? When some artist like Michelangelo paints God on the ceiling of a great church in Italy, What did he paint? He painted an old man. You you can probably see this picture in your mind's eye. The, The old man with the long gray beard and the long flowing gray hair reaching out to touch the finger of Adam and give him life. I think that's an image that is so famous that some people carry that with them and can't help but think of that when they think of God. Is he like that? Well, no. We know that he isn't. And in fact, we know that there's a problem with that ceiling. While it may be a great piece of art, it's actually breaking a commandment as it tries to depict God in a visual image, which the Scripture says, don't do that. Moses told the people of Israel, you saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to us out of that fire on the mountain. Therefore, do not become corrupt and make images of him in any shape. And isn't that exactly what all the nations around Israel were doing all the time? Loaded with images, loaded with idols that actually were no gods. They had no power, and yet they continually took wood and stone and gold and silver and so on and created… Idols are great because you can make God any way you want him to be. He can do anything according to you that you want him to do, or he can not do what you don't want him to do. And he can receive any kinds of sacrifices that you decide he should receive. Idols are wonderful. You can remake God, except they're not God. I love the wonderful passage in Isaiah 44. If you don't think the Bible uses sarcasm, it's never more rich, the sarcasm, when Isaiah writes from God's inspiration in chapter 44. He talks about the folly of idolatry by picturing a man cutting down a tree with an ax. And the man is saying to himself, well, here I am, I cut down a tree, and with half of the wood I cut down, I'll build a fire and roast my dinner. That's great. Now, with the other half of the wood I cut down, I will make a god, and I will pray to it and say, God, deliver me. He's already lost in his own folly and he says, shall I fall down before a block of wood? How ridiculous! But that's what idolatry is in every form that it takes. Now not everything about God's invisibility leads to something negative like idolatry. There is at least one very positive thing we can say about God being invisible. provides or protects the sense of divine mystery about God. As if God was covered in a, in a cloud and the greatness and the amazing attributes that he has are preserved by the fact that we can't put him under a microscope and dissect him. But we do know as much of him as he chooses to reveal, And the Scripture says He reveals a sufficient amount for us to know Him and trust Him. It's not as if we know nothing. It's just that we don't know everything or not even close to everything. There are things about God that we know the tiniest little piece. And we know there must be a lot more attached to that piece, but we don't see the whole thing. We get into doctrines like election and predestination. And some people get very mad because their minds can't fully comprehend these doctrines. They say, look, I've worked on trying to figure that out, and I can't figure it out, so it can't be true. And God says, no, I've revealed it is true. And guess what? It's a mystery at the bottom as far as you're concerned, but I say it's true. And there's more to me and to my works than you're able or allowed to know in this time and space. There are stamped on many truths and many things where we have threads or bits of truth. Mystery, you cannot trespass here. And if you lack completely a mystery or any mystery in the middle of your faith, then you aren't worshiping the true and biblical God about whom many things are still mysterious. Well, this is all background I've said to you, this first point. We human beings have a problem with an invisible God. So no wonder Philip came along and burst out this kind of ignorant, naive, presumptuous statement. Jesus, if you would just show us the Father, that would be enough. Oh, really? That's all you want? Show you the Father? Well, let's go into now in the second place what God has done. Because we understand clearly from this text, verses 7 to 11 of John 14, that God has visibly appeared in human history. Look what Jesus says. Have I been with you so long, Philip, and you still don't get it? And then this monumental statement that I said has to rank with one of the greatest doctrines, greatest statements that Jesus ever made or could have made. Whoever has seen me, has seen the Father. Can you let those words soak in as if you never heard them before? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You see, Jesus here is presenting the tremendous alternative that either he is indeed divinely born preexistent before his human appearing in this world, that he did indeed come from the Father's glory and has returned there after his death and resurrection, that he is the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world, or else the only other alternative that C.S. Lewis so memorably pointed out years ago, he is a lunatic who ought to be locked up for his own protection, because what he's saying is absurd unless it is true. Now throughout the book of John, Jesus has been stating this in one way or another. He said things like, all the words I speak are the Father's words. I only do what the Father directs. The Father's in me, working in me. This is really just the climax, you might say, of a truth that runs all through the gospel of John. He's saying God the Father is God and God the Son is God. They're one in essence and one in glory and yet mysteriously distinct in their personhood. God didn't die on the cross. God the Father did not die on the cross. God the Son died in his human person on the cross. He who loved us and shed his blood in our place there on the cross was not just simply a Galilean prophet who was, had his career brought to an end abruptly and was killed in an unjust process. He was not just a man of history, though he was that. He was God ever blessed. He was what the Nicene Creed says. I love that little phrase that they spun out at Nicaea in that creed. We say usually in December, we use it, and we say he is very God of very God. Jesus claimed here, look at verse 10. He said, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. We are one essence, one person, one personality or character. Let me add some verses to that if you're writing them down. Write these verses down. John one eighteen. no one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. That. Announced it early in this gospel. Then we would add words from Paul in Colossians 1.15. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn over all creation. Another one, Hebrews 1.3. You heard this in our assurance of God's grace earlier in the service. He, Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. It's as though God the Father knew that making us as human beings, we think visually. We think in terms of images. And, and when, you know, we say a relative's name or a friend's name, we picture a face. We, we have no idea of that person or we at least perhaps if your sight was severely impaired or you were blind or you'd never seen the face, you would know the tone of the voice. You would know something about that person that would come to your mind, some tangible reminder. And God says, all right, I am God, the eternal one, invisible, immortal. And he knows that we have to think of something, so he gives us something to think about, an image. And that image was, according to his plan, that a woman who had never known a man named Mary would conceive a child and in a particular date in history, which actually was probably 6 B.C., in a stable near a crowded inn in a little town called Bethlehem, a boy child would be born. And that boy child would grow up and become a common carpenter under the instruction of his stepfather, Joseph. And after years of obscurity, he would step forth, prophesy, do miracles, and one day say this astounding thing. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Philip, you asked to see the Father, you're looking at him. Now, you well know that many people want to categorize Jesus with the great men of history. I don't know who your uh, Hall of Fame would include as great men or women of historic accomplishments or statesmanship or character or leadership, whatever. You know, I, just grab a couple, Abraham, Lincoln, Gandhi. I don't know who we would pick. Whoever I might pick as the president of the United States, I'll get in trouble. So other than Lincoln, I'll I'll stop. But we'd say, oh, Jesus, he's up there with those guys. In fact, he's probably higher than them, but he's in that pantheon of greats. Well, the Son of God doesn't let us get away with that. He's saying, don't categorize me in the greats. Don't put me in the portraiture museum in Washington, D.C. with all the greatest heroes of all time. I don't belong there. There needs to be a separate museum for me because either I am the way to God because I am God, or I must be a lying demon or the world's worst pretender that ever existed. Now, people, you know, come along today and they say, well, okay, preacher, I hear you, but… Why can't God do this? All I'm asking is that he give me a personal vision. I, I know he spoke to people in dreams in the Old Testament. If he would just some night grab me with the most vivid dream vision that I've ever had, and I, it would be so real that I would know this is God speaking, and maybe I would even hear his voice in my bedroom, and then I could have that experience and hold on to that experience and say, I've seen God. I've heard from God. Why can't he just do that? Well, he can't do that or he doesn't need to do that because he has done that in the person of his son. Look at verses 10 and 11 again where he says the words that he spoke to the the disciples are the very words of God. And we remember how people reacted to him. And when he gave the Sermon on the Mount early in his ministry, they said, why never have we heard a man speak like this? with such authority. His words are amazing. And then he did his miracles. And even his enemies, by the way, didn't deny. I don't know very many places where an enemy of Jesus specifically denied that he did a miracle. The raising of Lazarus, they said, oh, we've got to kill him for doing this. But they didn't say he didn't do it. They saw Lazarus come out of the tomb, and they didn't say he's not capable of raising the dead. He said, because he's raised the dead, we have to kill him. Jesus says, whatever I speak, God speaks. What God works, I work. His standing challenge to every skeptic is, can you possibly prove otherwise? So do you see as we bring all this together that Christian faith is no blind, irrational leap People like to say that, oh, you Christians, you just come to the edge of a cliff and you jump off and you think God will grab you in space somehow. You're intellectually committing suicide. I think of this season of the year with students going off to college and remember myself as having been raised in a Christian home and trusting Christ at an early age. And my mind was questing off in all kinds of directions by the time I went to college. And I I, I don't think I would have verbalized it then, but as I look back now, I wanted to know: Is this faith that was my parents' faith that was mine too, pretty genuinely? But would it stand up out there in the intellectual world of ideas? Weren't there really a lot of smart philosophers that could tear the gospel of Jesus Christ apart? Maybe I just was, you know, on some kind of emotional high or something as a as an evangelical young person. Well, I was thankful for the years I spent delving into philosophers, even though I don't like philosophy today and spend almost no time reading it. But I was glad to be out there questing around in it for a while when I found out that philosophers know how to ask a lot of smart questions, but they don't really have any answers because Jesus is the answer. And no philosopher I've ever found has been able to punch any serious hole in the trust that this is the Son of God Most High, who appeared in human history, who left the record of his appearance in the hands of reliable witnesses. Most of them needed to become convinced. They weren't automatically convinced. Except I put my finger in the nail print. I won't believe it, remember? And they were convinced. This is the truth of God. In 1799, A particular piece of rock was found that was of some importance. Someone told me after the first service that they had physically seen this. I believe it's in the British Museum. Not terribly big. It probably, if it stood on this pulpit, it wouldn't overwhelm the pulpit. A few feet this way, a couple feet this way. It's a piece of stone found in Egypt that actually was ready to be used for common building material when somebody got interested in the inscriptions on it. And some experts came in, and finally, in the near 1800 there, they were astounded that they could actually put a date on this piece of stone. It was from 196 B.C., and it was actually an inscribed decree by King Ptolemy V coming from Egypt, and it had this governmental decree in three columns parallel, the same thing said in three different languages. Now, the middle language was one I can't even pronounce, and nobody knows what it is anymore, but the first one was Egyptian hieroglyphs, and the third one was ancient Greek, a known language. Well, what got so exciting was that nobody had ever been able to read Egyptian hieroglyphs, but here was a parallel text in Greek which people could read. And so you may know the Rosetta Stone became very famous because it unlocked The whole language of Egyptian hieroglyphics, and people were able to go on from there and build on that and learn that language. Well, let me tell you, Jesus Christ is the Rosetta Stone of God. God let his character be read, his plan and his mind and his love be read in a language of earth, a language of flesh and blood as his Son came forth to translate the infinite, unseen, eternal God into finite categories and visible works. When we see him, even at this distance in history, because reliable witnesses have told us what they saw, we have seen the Father, and we can know God in this way and no other way. Does this change our everyday lives? I point you to Hebrews 11.27 as we close this morning. You know, Hebrews 11 is that account where various people are praised for their faith and their perseverance in faith through the Old Testament. It's Moses who's being praised. Hebrews 11.27 says, Moses obeyed the call of God on sheer faith. The text says he left Egypt not being afraid of the anger of the king, and he endured as seeing him who is invisible. All Moses needed was a certainty that God, the unseen God, had called him at that burning bush. And for all his arguments, don't send me. I can't speak well. I'm not the right one. He went. He endured. Because he believed he had seen the one who was invisible. Now, if Moses could do that, and I realize how much more of God has been revealed to me in the revelation of Jesus Christ, is it possible that I can endure as seeing him who is invisible in whatever challenge is before me in my life right now? If the eternal God had not cared enough to make himself known to us, I don't see how he could have expected us to trust him. But since he has been revealed to us in space, time, human history, we're compelled not merely to believe in Him, but to reverence Him and obey Him all of our days. We can walk in a hope that is well-founded, a hope that endures and perseveres. And we put before ourselves one more text of Scripture today, First John 3.2. It clinches the matter, I think. Beloved, we are God's children now, And what we will be is not yet appeared to us, but we know that when he, Christ, appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him even as he is. Glory to God for that. Amen. Father, thank you for the revelation of yourself. Unseen one. You may be unseen to our human eyes right now. There's no lightning flashing in this room, no rumbling of the earth attending our words, but you have shown yourself. Thank you for Jesus Christ, the mirror of who you are. Help us to trust him. Help us to adore him. Help us to pursue him in your word and to stand fast And to go forward as seeing you, O God, who are otherwise invisible. Glory to you, in Jesus' name, amen.